Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a program about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown, and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers, and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes, and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE, where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is crime and thriller author Arlene Hunt. Her first book hit the bookshelves in 2004 and since then she has written another nine novels. Her latest one is called No Escape. It's a gritty thriller about gangland feuds in Dublin. Arlene, book number 10. Well done. Thank you very much. How did that happen? Yeah, it's actually interesting. This is the first time I've realised I'm in double figures, even though I'm aware of the fact that I've written 10 books, but I haven't thought about it in that in that context before. So yeah, so it's very, yeah, I'm pretty pleased with it. I can't complain. And this one is actually really timely because, again, it's about gangland feuds, which have been really all over the news in Ireland recently. So was it a case of real life inspiring the plot or just coincidence? It's two things. This is about um, people trafficking. And it's also about uh, families and the fractious relationship between families. Um, so we, I combined the two together for this. And it's very much uh, a look uh, I, in terms of society. It's been really interesting because there's been a lot in the news about people trafficking. And obviously recently there's been a lot in the news about gang wars because it, the violence seems to have upped the ante quite a considerable amount in the last few months. I mean, if you're talking about that poor little kid who's 17. Absolutely. Where they found pieces of him in a, in a, in a, in a different duffel bag or in a car. I mean, years ago, if you'd written something like that, people think you're going a little bit overboard or too extreme. But now it seems that nothing is too extreme or nothing is too violent. Nothing is too, you know, as bad as you can imagine it in your imagination. It happens in real life. And I suppose in terms of crime and like that, you know, if it can happen in your imagination, it can happen in real life. But what drew you to crime then, considering it is so gritty and it's the underbelly? Um, I read a lot of crime. I read a lot of crime fiction. That's the the very first and foremost thing. I read a lot of crime fiction. It's a genre I've always read, and it's sort. Of, I suppose it just resonates with me. Then, I mean, I watch you know TV shows and and crime TV shows. It seems to be the sort of thing that I enjoy most. And I think it's because there's a level of I've said this before. I, I think there's a level of comeuppance in crime fiction that I really like. What do you mean? Okay, so if you think about it in real life, many people actually get away with stuff like. There's probably people all over the world right now who are deeply, deeply, deeply nasty criminal people who are sitting on piles of money and living a great life. And, and just getting away with and it. And just getting away with it. And the sort of default position of crime fiction is there are bad people in crime fiction, but they usually get their comeuppance somewhere along the line. A detective will, will figure out what's happening or something will backfire on them. And at, towards the end of a novel or the end of a book, you know they'll pay for what they've done. And so I think that that's one of the things I like about crime fiction. People think it's very gritty, but I actually think there's a kind of a, a, a karmic balance to it a lot of the time. And how, how do you go about the research then? It depends on what, what book it is. It really depends on what book it is. So for this one, I read a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about trafficking and uh, how many people disappear into the country and where they're generally coming from and what happens to them. And I did, there was so much stuff I didn't understand or didn't know about the sort of the black market of humans, which is is it's depressing and it's depressing to read about, but that you you need to kind of open your eyes. Like, for example, I didn't know that a lot of foreign nationals are impl- Maria, employed to keep uh, grow houses uh, going. Mm-hmm. I just assumed, you know, I don't know what I assumed. I, did, I just had no just assumption about it, actually. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then I, I discovered and I read a few reports and it was the people who were found in these grow houses. They really had no English. They had no idea where they, where they had come. They'd been trafficked into, not only had they been trafficked into the country, they'd been moved around the country. 
you know, in various grow houses, just just to keep plants alive, just to create enough uh water and light and keep these plants alive so that they could be harvested and then they're moved on again. And I thought the idea of being, it's basically slave labor, mm-hmm. but in a modern day. Yeah. And so what I have here is I've got, I've I've centered this bo- a book around two girls, two sisters who come in and the moment they arrive in, and their names are Yulia and Celestine, and the moment they arrive into the country, they're hoping to create a better life for themselves. They've come from extreme violence, extreme poverty, and the very second they land in Ireland, more like almost the first action to them is an action of violence in which they're separated. And it's devastating for them because the younger sister is a teenager. She's mute. The older girl, her whole reason for living or for being and existing is to protect the younger one. And the moment they're in Ireland, they're separated. And one girl is sent down to a grow house and the other girl is sent into, basically it's a, a casino, but it's sort of a modern day bordello. And that's they're separated and immediately they're in peril. So it's an opportunity for you then to delve into characters as well as just looking at a plot. Yeah, and we'll have one of the main characters in this book is a guy called Leo Kennedy. And Leo Kennedy comes from what would have been at some point in in his father's life, Frank Frank would have been a, a career criminal who's actually changed his life around. He got married, he married into money and he's kind of, more, well, Leo describes him as a blue-eyed barracuda and that's what he is. Um but now he's got a, like all this cachet and he, you know, donates to charity and people like him because he's the archetypal bad, bad boy turned good. But Leo and he have a terribly, terribly complicated relationship. And Leo has a complicated relationship because of that with his two brothers. He's an older brother, Pat, and a younger brother, Liam. And so he has moved away from uh, Ireland for years and years. And he was a chef in London. But his life is just an absolute. It's falling down around his ears. It just is. He's just got so many issues and stuff that he's never really dealt with. And his idea of dealing with stuff is to come back to Ireland and go for a fresh start. So kind of like the girls, he's coming back to Ireland for a fresh start and kind of like the girls, it is not going to be what he thinks it's going to be. What he, what he was hoping it would be, exactly. And how did you get into writing initially? I always, uh, when I was in secondary school, I was a big debater, like a big really? debater, yeah. Enjoyed it? Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked it crafting an argument. I liked it being, I liked delivering an argument. I was very theatrical. I'd get up on stage in front of like hundreds of people and it wouldn't make any difference to me. I would just get into character straight away. I just liked it. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed demolishing somebody else's argument. And I know that sounds really like feisty, but I, I genuinely, I'd listen carefully and I'd pick up on a, on something they said that was the tiniest mistake and I could you know feel myself going, yes, yes. I can get them on that. I can get you on this and I will, I will get you on this. And so I just, you know, from that, it's, sort of a, it's always been something that I like to do. I spend a lot of time on my own. I'm a bit of a loner. And, uh, I'm always sort of in my own, own head to a certain degree. So writing to me is, 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 it's an enjoyable way of spending time on your own while you're actually not on your own because you're always either creating something or you're having a conversation or you're plotting something. You know, it's one of those weird things. I was just talking about this at the the book launch the other night. You know, I spend, I've got two German shepherds. Anyone that follows me on Twitter or anything knows I, I have two big, huge dogs. And I spend a lot of time in the mornings up the Dublin mountains on my own. With them. With the two dogs. Yeah, though. with the good two security. dogs. Good security. Oh, good security. <laughs> yeah, they're very good security, actually, especially the big one, the male archer. But, um, you know, I'm I'm up there and it's it's cold, it's it's bitter at the moment, it's really barren, and you're just going along and you're just thinking about murder, where I could bury a body up here if I wanted to, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's one of the things I noticed when I wrote The Chosen, which is the first book I had set in the States, 
I literally was up in the mountains thinking about where I was going to bury a body and a whole team of Germans cycled past me and were all waving at me down the valley and I was thinking, I just can't, I can't bury somebody up here as no. easy as I might think I can. If they also knew what was going on in your head, they yeah. might have cycled a little, a little bit quicker. <laughs> so you were, you were 25 though before you started actually writing. Yeah, I wrote the first book, Vicious Circle, and at 25, but I didn't, I didn't get it published. I basically got an agent from it. Uh, Faith O'Grady was my agent, but we didn't get the book published and it was only when I wrote the second book, which is the first of the quick investigations and um, that they bought the second book and then went back and bought the first book and that's how it happened that's how it began and what was the reason for not getting a publisher do you think for the first book was it was, did you get any feedback yeah I did I got a, lo- a great feedback really it's just one of those things it's just you know there was I it was my first book so inevitably as you write a first book you, you put everything and the kitchen sink into it I mean it's just it's a natural thing for writers you know and also I was very young um, a little naive, full of enthusiasm, but just naive. Um, and so you 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 have this, you have a, a level of confidence at twenty five that you probably don't have the same amount of confidence as thirty five or forty five. You just have this level of confidence. I never didn't think I wasn't going to be published. I was always one hundred percent sure I was going to be published. And if it wasn't that book, it would be another one. And it just. I'd like to get 25-year-old me and <laughs> exactly. bottle whatever it was I was running on at that point and, and just keep it for moments of doubt now. But that's that's how I felt about it. And interesting then, you, as you said, you went on and you started writing a series then, the, the Quick Investigations. So why a series then as opposed to a standalone? Because I had an idea of developing the characters of John Quigley and Sarah Kenny. It was, it was very much them that carried the books into five books, you know, because I really liked the idea. I mean, John doesn't want to be a detective because he's super smart or super bright. He's just super lazy. Right. And, you know, the Irish suit him. <laughs> Why not? Why not? You yeah. know, and he's a, a bit of a ladies' man and, you know, he just kind of likes the lifestyle and he's a bit lazy and he doesn't really want to have a nine to five job. And that's really the the, the, the very baseline of, 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 of John Quigley. He doesn't want to do a nine to five job. He doesn't want to work a nine to five job. And Sarah has her own issues and it suits her to tag in behind John. Mm-hmm. And also they have a very interesting relationship between the two of them back and forth. You know, they used to date. There's obviously a little bit of tension between them. You know, he he absolutely 100% has her best interests at heart, but she can be a cold fish. And she, I like that about her though. I like that she's not easily bought and she's not easily won over. She's prickly. And how did you find then shaping those characters over the, the five books? They have to grow and they have to mature, but then they have to develop their own lives because they're not a couple and because they have all kinds of, well, Sarah in particular has a, like an interesting backstory and there's a lot going on in her life and you find out more about her per book, per book, per book. Whereas John is pretty much an open book from the word go. This and is the way he is. This is John. You just either take him as he is or not. And he doesn't care one way or the other. So that's the great thing about him where she is very not, she's closed and she has her own issues and a whole way of, uh, way of looking at stuff that's very, very different to him. And yet at the same time, when they're together and they're trying to work a case together, you know, that sort of energy that they have, they, they feed off each other's energy because, you know, he'll take it down a notch and she'll rise it up a notch. And it, it just works very well then when you're, you're working in true crime. And had you planned on five books in that series? Um, no, I hadn't planned on it. I'm not much of a planner, I have really? to say. I'm not genuinely not much of a planner. I just sort of go how, what I think at the time. I right. sort of go it, it instinctually. And what about with plots then for the books? Do you plot? I have an idea. The only one, the only book I had an absolute, no, I tell a lie, two books that I had an absolute definite plot was The Outsider and The Chosen. They were 100%. I knew in my heart and soul exactly where this book was going, why it was going the way it was going and what I wanted to do with it. And that was it. And how come they were different then than the other ones? I don't know. The the Chosen, I more or less woke up with the idea in my head and completely could see, could almost see it. You know, I, I wrote that book so fast as well. It was a really fast book to write. Normally it takes me about nine months to write a book, like the first draft. 
between foostering around with it and changing things. It takes me about nine months. That's quite good. That seems quite fast. Mm, I would think that's about average, I think, for a first draft. But anywho. And is that writing every day? Yeah, I write. Well, I write five days a week. I don't write on the weekends. I prefer to to foof around in the mountains with the dogs without (laughs) thinking about working on the weekends. And do you set yourself a particular word target then? I like to do about 2,000 words a day. It doesn't always end up that way. Um, and then I like to spend an hour or two in, in the even time editing as well because it's it's just one of those things. I find my energy levels are very different throughout the day. So I've got more energy to go and work and write creatively in the morning. But in the even time when I'm slightly tired or I'm slightly more analytical and I can sort of edit very, very well in the even time and just cut out stuff that I'm not happy with, which of course decimates your word count sometimes, but, you know, needs must. And I'd prefer to have the exact amount of words and the right sentences than like uh, like an extra 250 words that I would ch- change in the next edit anyway. And how many drafts would you normally do? Uh, five. Five? Really? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Why is that? Because I am very good at this stage of just like shelving anything that I think is just filler. And I'm, I really mean that. I just, my books are fairly lean and tight at this stage, but anything that I feel is filler, anything I feel I'm just putting in there because I think... I, I was lacking confidence on the day that I wrote it that I, I don't think a reader will get. Of course a reader will get it. Readers are really smart. Mm-hmm, like absolutely. most readers are super smart and they don't need everything, you know, handed to them in piecemeal. Like they don't need a, a, an in-depth description of a living room. They know what a living room is. Most people do, you know. And I just find that as I get older and the more books I write, the more confidence I have in my my understanding of the reader's ability to to see something without me having to like describe it down to the nth degree. Tell, don't show, or show, don't yeah. tell, which, and, whichever and that, one well, of those exactly, is right. Exactly so. People are, are really smart. Like People generally are quite smart. And so you just give give them enough information and allow them to, the scope to fill it with their imagination. Do you ever find yourself stuck? Yes. Really? And what do you yeah. do then? I go for a walk. Oh, right, okay. More walks More with walks. the doggies. I walk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I do, of course. I mean, there probably isn't a writer alive who it doesn't have that moment where you're just going, I don't know what the se- next sentence is going to be. I don't know what the next chapter is going to be. I don't know why I started this book, actually. That's a lot. You know, you yeah. get a lot of, I don't know why I started Would this book. Would plotting help more then? Not for me. It doesn't ever really. What happens, What ha- the best thing I can do is get through a first draft. Right. And then by the time I've got to the first draft, I have something to work with. And I, I teach creative uh, writing quite a lot as well. And I always say the same thing in, in classes because you get a lot of people in there who have started novels and they've started novels and they've started novels. And I say the same thing all the time. Finish your draft. You cannot work on something unless you have something to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that sounds very simplistic, but it's true. You have to get to the end of the draft. And there's a, sections in drafts that trip people up but it's always around a 30,000 33,000 you know people have got over the, the initial energy of a start and it's very energetic and you know where you're going with your book and you actually know probably a lot of people know what the end is it's this section in the centre how do you get there why did I introduce this character and then people inevitably people go right back to the start and they start tinkering around with the start of the novel and they'll, they'll rock it all the way back up almost to the exact same place that they stopped and, and then, then go, okay, because this isn't working now, so I'm going to go all the way back, back here again. and change. I think I'm going to change this one thing and this is going to be the one that sorts it out. And they'll rock all the way back up again to the, this point and then hit a, hit a wall because it's not, that's actually not what's wrong. What's wrong is that you haven't finished the draft, so you don't know where it's going. And you so don't you need know to just keep working through that you wall. You need to work through it. And it's really hard to do that sometimes. In a, in, I completely have, have, have nothing but sympathy for people who are working through the first <laughs> draft because I know what it's like myself. But yeah, it's that sort of... You have to sometimes just dig in and work and work and keep writing and keep writing until you get to the end of that first draft. And once you're at the end of the first draft, then just put it away for a few days and go for a walk, eat some nice food, have a glass of wine, whatever you have to do, watch some TV shows 
and then go back to it and look at it with a critical eye. And then, you know, interesting you said there earlier on with your first book as well, you got you got an agent as opposed to a yeah. publisher. You eventually got the publisher. Would you encourage people to go down the agent route as opposed to a publisher route? I think the publishers at the moment are so snowed under and so busy and so inundated with people that want to write, which I completely understand. I think if you have an agent, your agent will judge the weight of your book and understand maybe which publishing house it would suit. So it gives you a sort of a leg up straight away, you know, because an agent will have a relationship with a publishing house. And so they they can call on a publisher or they can call on an, an editor and say, look, I've got this book here. You might want to read it. And that will cut you an awful lot of, uh, you know, flat time and energy and going onto slush piles and sending notes in and people just going, look, I just don't have time to read at the moment, which is very, very often the case. People just don't have time to read. It's not uh, that they don't think your book is good. It's just they might not, they might have about five other books waiting to be read. And would you use your agent, I suppose, as a sounding board in terms of plots that you're coming up with? Mm, not plots, no, not particularly, but I would, re- I would, at this stage, we were together a long time and I'd run ideas by her and ask her opinion. I, I value her opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, she's smart at what she does and she's good. I value my editor opinion like across the board as well like my editor is Kira Constantine we've been working together for for donkey's years and Kira is someone I would listen to very quickly because Kira is the one who gets you know gets handed all the 300 something pages <laughs> of you're like oh, here I can't read this anymore it's five it's five drafts you you read it and she'll read it and she'll come back and Kira's eye is absolute she'll come back and say this works this works this works this doesn't and Jenna you take it on board I sulk for about a day. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Generally speaking, I sulk for about a day and think, what does she know about stuff anyway? Huh? Then I remember that she knows plenty about stuff. And, and would it be small things or big things, though? It depends. It just depends. Right. Sometimes I'll go off on a tangent, you know, on the first draft or second draft. And, you know, she'll just have to rein me back in because it, I might have spun off into something. And she go, well, that's great. And, and it's, it's, you know, the writing's fine, but it's not really relevant to the plot. And so I have to kind of go, okay, okay. I'll listen to you. Okay. And is the book always better as a result? Always. 100%. Right. She's never wrong. It's really annoying. It's very, very irritating. She's never wrong. But then that's why she's an editor. She's that's really, she's exactly a genuinely it. really good editor. And I also say that if if you give your novel to somebody whose opinion you value and who has a genuinely good critical understanding of what she's saying I mean, it's too easy to give like people often give their novels to their friends or their family or their mom or something to read and they, they, they go oh it's great you know but that's that they have to say that They're your, they, they love you and do you find the same then when you're teaching the creative writing classes that you have to be constructive in, in I'm what always, you're saying I'm, I'm always constructive because I know what it's like and I, I always try to 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 say things in a, in a positive way but also not to lie about things I'm not going to, to to sugarcoat something I'm not going to sort of say oh well it's all it's all going to be great and you like you know you just sit in your attic and you type and it's going to be fabulous I don't I'm very uh, quite open Realistic. about how difficult it can be to get even to get published and also even the writing process is not all you know sitting around and oh you know I did a couple of thousand words this morning and now I'm going to faff off for the rest of the day. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, sometimes you just have to slog your way through it and then edit and then slog and edit and slog and edit. And then eventually you'll find this little th- little thread that you can kind of go, oh, there's the gold thread. I can find that one and now I can follow it and see where it goes. Do you still enjoy it? Yeah, I love it. Really? <laughs> probably nothing else you would do at this point, is there? Um, I do a lot of, I, like I work for RTE as well. Like I do sort of uh, film reviews and stuff like that. I have to say oh, that's a really enjoyable job. 
you well, know, you get to go and sit in a cinema. You get to go sit in a cinema <laughs> in the dark at half ten in the morning and watch movies, and you go, oh, I might go home and write about that now." I, that to me is quite a nice job. And do you think that understanding of the visual medium has sort of helped you in the writing process in terms of visualizing your storylines and helping them to more come alive on the page? I've seen some really bad films that I thought could have done with better writers on board, right? You know, and that's made me. I, I find that quite interesting. You know, because you might have a brilliant subject matter, but it's just been really badly written. Um, which I've noticed. But then I'm not a screenwriter, so I could be just talking out, out, my, out my backside. I don't, I'm not a screenwriter, so I don't know maybe how many drafts I went through or who edited or how it was cut down on the, on the cut, cut floor, but I have seen some really shockers. You've just finished a young adult's novel. Yes, I have. I haven't sold it yet, but I, I think I'm going to have to go back and do a redraft on it. I'm and very excited about it. What's, though. Well, I suppose, firstly, what's it about? <laughs> it's about... Uh, demons uh, and angels and they're, they're battling for the souls of uh, well, everybody actually but right. they're doing it through the medium of a singing competition oh okay um, and so they've discovered that people will pretty much sign away their souls for everything you know for free tickets and free stuff and they, but people sign away without even realising that they're actually signing their soul away right so it's all and there's a voting process so it's kind of like a Britain's Got Talent or America's Got Talent but they're all like demons and they're all singing and everyone's voting for them but when people vote for them they're actually what they're doing is they're selling their soul by, by voting for their favourite singer Have you been watching too much reality TV? I don't watch reality TV So where did the idea come from then? I, I, if I tell you this you're going to laugh because it sounds ridiculous I woke up it was December it was between Christmas and it was between New Year's and I woke up and I ha- found a lump on my breast Right and I woke my husband up and I said oh I just found a lump on my breast and Miley Cyrus just told me the entire plot for a demon and angel book. And he, went, <laughs> <sighs> he was like, which of these am I supposed to react That's to more first? More or less what he said. He was like, I don't know how to process any of this information. We'll talk in the morning. So I did. And I went and I got my, uh, uh, I got a breast check and it was benign. It was just one of those Great, weird little thankfully. things that happened. And then I got up and I, that night I got up and I wrote 3000 words of a synopsis of this whole thing that Miley Cyrus told me about. So stupid when I say this out loud, and then that. I'm became, sure it's great when we read it. Yeah. <laughs> that became the YA book, and basically that's what it is. And it, it was that's exactly how it happened. It's the most random, odd, strange. I, like I've never had that happen to me before, where the entirety, even down to the characters, who the characters should just be. disappeared. Yeah, because the, all the demons are like there's the demons. There's, there's the nine circles of, and all the demons have their own sort of uh, bureau, and they all have their own demons, and they all have their own methodology, and none of them like each other because they're demons, and so they all have issues with each other and it's actually quite good fun. And had you been planning to write a YA no, novel? No. No, and really? Miley Cyrus rocked up and in, she goes, hi, I'm Miley Cyrus. I went, actually, I know who you are, which is, <laughs> I know you are. She goes, great, we'd like you to write this plot down and, and that's how it happened. It, I don't know why my brain was, I think she was kind of in the media a lot of the time, was around right. wrecking balls at the time and she, just, it just popped right in and she just said hi and introduced herself and she was really nice about it. So you're saying then you may need to go back and do a bit of a redraft. I'm, but going, then. To, I'm going to do a redraft on it and because uh, I want to get it exactly right because, you know, these things don't all very happen very often. They just don't, you know, where you get someone just pop or your mind or your subconscious just goes, here, here's it. a whole, here's a whole book, write it. I mean, and that never happens to me. Ever. And it had never happened with the crime books, ever? Never. Really? Never. I mean, like I said to you earlier, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with The Chosen and with The Outsider. I knew where I wanted to go with it, but I never had anything like this. And in terms of the next book then, the next fiction crime book? No, I'm going to do one more about the Kennedys, Leo Kennedy and his family, because there's another story there with them. Because oh, at the moment, okay. he's just, uh, when and No Escape finishes, he's just sort of on this sort of almost limbo where he thinks things are going to be okay, but they are not going to be and okay. And did you purposely do that and leave it open? Yes. Right. Because things are not going to be okay. You see, you were planning then. 
I would call that plan, but okay. A loose, <laughs> we'll just say that an, I had an idea in my head that things are not going to be as swell as he thinks they are. Okay, well, we need to read No Escape first and then move on to the next one whenever it hits the shelves. Arlene Hunt, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find No Escape in your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production.